Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Also, if you haven't bought Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, my book, please pick it up. We also have a Substack now under the name Reconstructing Inclusion. I'll be putting more content on that Substack before you know it. Hello and welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. My name is Omri Johnson, your host, and I'm here with Dr. David Livermore. And I always sound like I'm excited, and I usually am, but I've known David for some years now, and I can't tell you how inspired I've been by you, David, and your work. And I just am excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Omri. Really looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. So, David, we always start before we jump into the heart of our conversation, a favorite song or movie that you go to over and over again. Let me do favorite song, though. That's tough because we're pretty eclectic musically in my family. My wife's a professional musician. We listen to all kinds of stuff, though. I opt out of her country music, though she's a classical pianist. But if I had to choose one of my favorites. I'm a product of the 70s and 80s, so I'm going to go with Billy Joel's My Life, which, I mean, how much more American individualist can you be than I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life, but <laughs> there you go. I mean, my life, my way, we can go down a whole list of songs. Like Agency, that. right? Empowering people, <laughs> authenticity. You know, I'm all for it. This American in me, I, it's still there. I, I've tried to get a little bit better over the years, but I'm still there. And I still believe that it's important to have a balance. Yeah. Just, share, share that song with your son. I will. Teach. I'm sharing everything American with him because now he's barely speaking um, <laughs> much English. So I got to be, I got to indoctrinate him with American. And then one book or person that's influenced and or inspired you personally or professionally in your life or career journey? Boy, like you, I'm sure there are, are so many, but at the risk of sounding like a cop-out, I would actually say my colleague Soon Ang is one of those people for me, not only because of the obvious connection, for those who don't know, Soon Ang is the pioneering researcher in cultural intelligence that I know we'll, we'll get to talk about. But for me, my friendship and really mentorship from soon is far more than that. We connect on so many levels, you know, business, spiritual, you know, family life, personal. So yeah, I would say soon over the last 15 years has really been a consistent presence in me that has shaped who I am. Fantastic. Thank you, David. So now let's jump in, uh, share uh, your background with our audience, a little bit about who you are in parallel with your work and, and what you're seeking to create in the world. Yeah, thank you. Well, I have a bit of a interesting identity professionally in that I think of myself as both an academic and an entrepreneur, which those typically are seen as polar opposites. And it's really been that way throughout most of my professional life. I've always had a foot in the academic arena and been very interested in studying culture and how do we have evidence-based understanding of culture rather than just pop psychology or anecdotal? And on the other hand, I've never had any tolerance for academic research that isn't relevant. And so I wouldn't have necessarily early in my career called that entrepreneurial, but I think you know when we eventually got to building and leading the Cultural Intelligence Center that's fully devoted to the 
academic findings of cultural intelligence made for the real world, I sort of found this happy discovery of like, oh, I've kind of found my place, like being devoted to the research, but translating it into to real world impact. And I've stepped away from the day-to-day -day leadership of the Cultural Intelligence Center. And, and even now, I've most recently stepped into a role at Boston University. So back in the academic institution, but even in that role, I'm looking at the research surrounding global leadership and cultural intelligence, and then asking what are new and innovative ways that we can do it. So I think that then ties with your, your follow-up question of what is it that I want to do in the world? I, I just... <laughs> To quote the great Omri Johnson, and maybe we'll get into this, diversity is, like you can talk woke, anti-woke or whatever else, it is a reality. And I happen to think it's a reality that opens up all kinds of opportunity. And so what I wanna do in the world is say, how do we just learn how to navigate it and tap into that opportunity for ourselves, our organizations, our, our communities and our world. Oh, I love that. You know, in your book, I think it was the cultural intelligence difference or no, was it, uh, I where I quote you driven by difference, yeah. driven by difference. And you, you said something really important. You said Omri's right. I use that <laughs> pretty much all the time. I remember you day. showing that to your niece, like as, as credibility that absolutely <laughs> every once in a while, I just put it back in her face. You see this? But, but you know, the, the reason, I, in fact, I started the whole book with that statement, but there was just something about the simplicity of you saying that diversity is that kind of diminished some of the, and that was even before we were into the whole like interesting time that we're in right now with the DEI world. But before it became so polarized, it was just kind of this freeing thing of, I'm not here to try and convince you of the demographic shift or what you think about reproductive rights or January 6th or all these other US-based things we have now, just this is a reality, are you up for it? So that's my background. I, I have this keen curiosity in the reality that diversity is and then this desire to actually see how we make a difference in it. Yeah, I, I think that when we think about what cultural intelligence is, what you just said really sums up a lot of what you've been up to an extent. I'd like to get a little more granular with that. Mm -hmm. What is cultural intelligence? Why is it important? And as a follow-up, how would you frame compelling reasons or you know, maybe not the most, but a few compelling reasons why people should build their CQ capability? Yeah. Let me start with a, a technical definition of cultural intelligence. It's quite simply the capability to relate and work effectively with people who are different than you. And sometimes I just more simply say it's the ability to get along with anyone, anywhere. So as you know, there's 20 years of research and hundreds of now thousands of peer reviewed articles that are behind it, but we can actually measure cultural intelligence. We can predict how well you're going to be able to get along with anyone, anywhere based upon your CQ assessment results. So that's what cultural intelligence is. It's an actual form of intelligence that any of us can learn and develop. We can measure it. We can improve it. Why do we need it? Why is it relevant at the risk of being cute? You know, I'll come back to Omri Johnson's because diversity is. So in part, you're going to be obsolete if you don't gain cultural intelligence. So I'm not here to make you woke or anti-woke. I'm just telling you, increasingly you're working in an organization characterized by all kinds of diversity. And I think you and I 
define diversity in similar ways and that we take a pretty broad definition of it. Of course, it includes nationality and race, but also all the forms and markers of diversity that your audience would be very familiar with. And so at the most basic level, I would say, you know, why is it really important? It's because diversity is, is a reality. The follow-up that piece, I would say that, okay, sure, but then why cultural intelligence? Why is that needed? As you know, what we're specifically interested in is the capabilities and skills that are needed to respond to diversity and to drive inclusion. And so I'm quick to acknowledge, and you and I have gone back and forth on this throughout the years, that the cultural intelligence is not the end all. It's not the only thing. Your book aptly talks about that. You include cultural intelligence, but there are myriad other important strategies that are there. But the piece that I would say cultural intelligence does is these are the skills for how you actually do inclusion. These are the ways that you actually get people to speak up if you're dealing with people. Actually, I mean, in your former life, we worked together on a whole campaign that your company was doing on creating a speak up culture. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that we interacted about was not everybody welcomed becoming a speak up culture. So how does cultural intelligence help a leader sitting in Dubai versus Shanghai versus Cambridge or Boston right. Right. actually get people to speak up? So right. to prevent obsolescence and on a more positive way to promote inclusion, I would say cultural intelligence is, is a key part of giving us the skill to actually develop inclusive teams, organizations, et cetera. I, I totally agree. And that, that work when we did, when I was still inside, really spoke to so many things. And I don't know if you know this, but that work, that was an ERG that drove that work. It was you and I, I don't, we, you know, I've said this, I don't, I'm not a big believer in. in right, right. In but I didn't know this emerged from that. Yeah. So that emerged from that ERG and what else emerged from it was a huge Toastmasters group development over the course of a few years, where even here in Basel, the Toastmasters out of the company has expanded and they've had multiple award winners out of their chapters, both in Boston and, and here in Basel. And it's quite fascinating because all of that came from an employee resource group. And it's not just for people inside the companies anymore. It's something that's expanded beyond the organization where they're working with other Toastmasters groups and they've developed a lot of cash throughout the community. So it was- a And what's, what's the impact. link with Toastmasters? Well, a lot of the people in the cross-cultural ERG wanted to learn how to feel confident when they were presenting. They were right. mostly second or third, fourth language English speakers. And so even though they're here in Basel, the company language is English. And so people wanted to get better at speaking English. Interesting. You can see those people get promotions. You can see them go into, leave the company in some cases and go get bigger jobs. And they developed these, one person became a professional speaker as a result of being group. So many things that I was just, every time I would talk to people, cause I wasn't driving the, my uh, employees drove ERGs at my company. I sat in and I gave budget, but. I was kind of, I didn't know all the stuff that was happening. People would just come tell me like after the fact, I need to thank you for creating. I was like, I didn't create that. That was mm -hmm. your colleagues mm -hmm. and you. And just, I mean, I was so humbled by what they created out of that work. Starting really one of the first things we did was a CQ training. Mm -hmm. So that, that says a lot about what you helped us spark. And I was uh, very lucky to meet you when I did. 
So we met and you know, I've been certified a couple of times with your team and we've had some conversations about where the work was headed and I've seen all of that flourish and manifest. And I think the first time I heard about you is when you wrote Leading with Cultural Intelligence. And I think I have, it is 12 to 13 books. I was asking you earlier and I had already researched that. You already talked about me being right, so we don't need to go into that anymore. <laughs> but I, I'm curious, Dave, you've done so much and you've made such an impact on people's lives across multiple continents. What's most amazed you about the adoption of CQ and the expansion of it? Well, a couple things. First of all, despite my saying that I think of myself as an academic and an entrepreneur, I actually sort of stumbled into the entrepreneurship side. I wouldn't have said that to you when we started the Cultural Intelligence Center. It was genuinely oriented out of, we shouldn't just be protecting this research in academic journals. It's not going to get out to the real world. So the happy surprise to me then was what you just described, the, the early adoption from individuals like you. And I mean that with all sincerity. In fact, I think... Um, you hosted our first in-house internal certification program we, we had ever done. And I would say perhaps some of the surprises for me when I think about the adoption, especially in the early years, were some of the groups that were eager to learn about CQ that I wouldn't have expected at all. And um, first is we saw a big uptick in the level of interest from IT, engineering, and finance, number quantifiable people and researchers from the likes of the kind of companies that you were at. And it was kind of like, really? Like the, the stereotype was, this stuff is all a bunch of soft, fluffy. But in part, I think that was what they liked about cultural intelligence. Wait, 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 you can quantify this? There's a number that actually tells me where I am in this? And you and I would certainly say, yes, but with that, there's some nuance. I'm never sure. going to just fully reduce someone to, oh, I can tell you what your CQ scores are. But I think that numerical value just gave them something concrete and the model itself. And then the other thing that surprised me was we were finding far more receptivity in places like your hometown and places like where I spent the last 15 years, Grand Rapids, Michigan, heart of the, the Midwest, than we were in places like New York, London, and Singapore. And my hunch, this is not research-based, is that if you're in a place like a rural region or a Midwest region that hasn't typically viewed themselves as overly global or even diverse, even though certainly diversity was there, there tends to be a oh crap, we got a bunch of immigrants coming here. We've just acquired a company in Japan. Whereas if you're in a place like Geneva or Singapore or New York, like, please, like we host the United Nations. I think we've got this whole thing down. And so I was really surprised at some of the places and companies that were most eager to do it, where I would have thought they would have kind of not even seen the relevance of it. So th those are a few things that that comes great. Mind. Well, if you ever, my mom is in the process at 82 of wanting to start a new business and she's going to build a new home to start the business in. So if you need like some space for a CQ center, Topeka, Kansas, um, <laughs> you just let us know. We might, you know, the things you life. shared with me about your mom, I think that would be a great business <laughs> idea. So <laughs> absolutely. So uh, let's talk a little bit, David, about digital, diverse, and divided. What I liked was the tag 
because nobody talks to racists in DEI. They just yell at them and call them racist. <laughs> and sometimes they call people that aren't racist, racist too. But that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> we can go in. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but so the, the, the tag of digital diverse and divided for those that aren't familiar is how to talk to racists, compete with robots and overcome polarization. And you said something there and you, you were one of the first people to read Reconstructing Inclusion. So you knew that I centered my work on humanity. And so when you said that, I was like, yes, this is why I love this guy so much because he's thinking about this in the most kind of broad way about who we are. And I know some of that comes because of your spiritual background and how much you're committed to our spirits and those spirits have no racial categorization. <laughs> they are all the same. So you said, and I quote, our shared humanity is the antidote to hate. So how do we move towards amplifying this shared humanity in our organizations, Dave? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? So as you know, in, in the book, I actually start from that point and talk about what we share in terms of our humanity. And I was expecting a lot of backlash from the DEI community because especially coming from a guy who, for your listeners you know, who don't know, white, straight, middle-aged, cisgender, put all the privileged adjectives along with it. Oh, here comes a white guy telling us, let's just focus on what we have in common. And so if we're not careful, I understand that focusing on shared humanity could sound a whole lot like the colorblind approach or right. all lives matter, et cetera. And where I'm interested in taking us, and I think it's part of what is behind the friendship as well as professional uh, collegiality we've had for more than a decade together, is how do we simultaneously hold you and I have 99.9% .9 the same DNA and have a, a spirit that wants to see the world be a better place. And you and I are vastly different people in part because of the color of our skins and lots of other things that go with it. So that was more of a philosophical answer to it. I think, and this might get me into trouble. I'm not worried about it with you, but I think in part, it means we need a reset in the DEI conversation. And and in fairness, I'm talking largely from what I experience in the Western world, and particularly right. the U.S. Right. But it's feeling to me more and more like a lot of the DEI conversation is rooted in othering a new other. Mm. And I am very comfortable, you know this, but for your audience who may not, I'm very comfortable with having conversations about needing people who look like me to face our white fragility, to encounter the discomfort that comes with having a reckoning of our privilege, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I genuinely believe all that. On the other hand, I'm just really worried about where this all goes. If the answer to people like you having been othered for hundreds of years is just to give you a new group to other, et cetera. So that's for me where we have to rethink about this. And yes, there have to be ways that we differentiate the kinds of support and resources that we give to people based upon their background and at the same time not lose the heart that we're all a bunch of human beings sure. and the the impulse to dehumanize each other to help uh 
promote equity for another group doesn't seem like it's moving forward. So that's more philosophical than it is tangible. Like, what do we do inside an organization to do that? But to me, it starts with that kind of mindset. Sure. So what's the role of CQ in that? Because when you, you think about what CQ brings as a skill set, what are the things inside of the framework and the research of CQ that can help us move from this space of them, us, to a yeah. we? Yeah. Two things. First, I'll suggest how I think CQ helps address it, and then I'll talk about some of the emerging research we're doing on CQ because of some inadequacies perhaps of how it addresses it. I would say where it does is first and foremost in the drive piece. So as your audience may know, there's four capabilities that we look at with CQ, your drive, your knowledge, your strategy and action. In that drive piece, the motivation for me has to start with, I see you as a fellow human being and you and I get in the midst of all these DEI arguments about intent versus impact. And, and I understand, like I may have the best of intentions and if I offend you, you don't really give those. You can say it on my podcast, but yes, I do But whatever. Yeah. On the other hand, if you know that I'm willfully trying to be mean, you know, that, that does still make some kind of difference, sure. right? It's sure. not that intense, entirely irrelevant. So the drive piece, the motivation, actually one of your and my very first conversations after you had read leading with cultural intelligence, you're like, I'm also talking to David Rock and I'm looking at neural leadership stuff. And how does the work in unconscious bias link together with cultural intelligence? Again, long before lots of people were talking about yeah. unconscious bias. And I think it was in that drive piece that we were saying, do I have the motivation to see humanity? The piece where I would say that we need yet to go and where some of the research is looking at it is, I think it was before we actually started recording that you and I were just having a brief conversation about the increased complexity that exists in the whole DEI space. And you know, we all have this impulse to wanna to oversimplify it, black versus white, you know, male, female, et cetera. And, you know, it can both simultaneously be true that race is a really important factor and also that it's not the only factor. And so you, you can help translate this for me <laughs> to your audience in, in lay terms. But we would say that what cultural intelligence has looked at most is horizontal differences and having a knowledge of how does a white guy interact with a black guy or how does a German interact with an American and what we need to spend more time is looking at what we call vertical differences. That is, what if you're my boss and now looking you're a power? Yeah, power, exactly. Status difference. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think the research needs to go further and look at it because we know that drive knowledge strategy and action in part is reflected on those basic categories of culture that we look at, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender. But you also within that have to say, what if it's a whole room of black professionals? It doesn't mean they're all equal, but you still need exactly. cultural intelligence to navigate the power differences. Yeah. Now you're speaking my language, Dave. I mean, you always do, but that resonates with me. And I, I actually say this a lot, and a lot of people don't want me to say it. I've been wildly privileged in my life. Mm -hmm. I grew up with a business owner for generations, all the way back to so-called Black Wall Street. My family wasn't in Greenwood, but they were outside in Bowley and Oak Muggy running businesses for decades before Greenwood. So I had, you know, I was pretty privileged and I've been privileged for generations even before I was an embryo. 
right? And now I live in Switzerland. I mean, if you've been to Switzerland, you kind of know what I'm saying. I, you know, I live in a house in Switzerland, right? And so I've been wildly privileged and I happen to be brown skin. I've been to two private institutions for higher education. I've been really blessed. And I've oftentimes had power over people that look like you. Now, how I use that power might be different than somebody else, but I'm sure I've abused it too, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so when you start thinking about CQ and that shared humanity space for somebody who sits in a powerful role, regardless of what, you know, their predominant identity or the one that we see is, how does kind of digesting some of what we need to learn or what we can get from CQ allow people to understand power dynamics and maybe address them? And I imagine that's part of the research that's ongoing, that we're asking those questions. Is anything emerging already or do you have any hunches? Uh, a couple hunches and a few emerging things. So in the knowledge domain, you know, one of the things that you and I have been teaching the longest when we do CQ sessions are the cultural value differences, hierarchy, direct, indirect communication. So that's one place where I think we always say, well, it's never as simple as just having an individualist and collectivist on a team, but we don't really do much to say, but how do you actually manage having both of those forces there? I think part of what we're seeing is then when you also put the power difference on it and ask, how does that together with the cultural values impacted? The other piece that we're beginning to see is that improved cultural intelligence may differ based upon how much power you have in the situation. Meaning does, if I'm in the power position, my improved CQ probably helps me more with perspective taking of what it's like for you to not be in the power position. Whereas if I'm somebody that's without power, the improved CQ in that situation is probably back to your Toastmaster speak up illustration. It's giving me more agency to say, but wait, 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 there are ways that I can still influence without being disrespectful, without subordinating authority. So that needs to be distilled much more crisply and we need more evidence to support it. I think it's where it becomes much more interesting of saying yeah. the way that you apply this depends on the situation rather than okay, you white male, here's how you always use this. Well, tell me what the situation is. And then let's see if it really allows us to do the boundary spanning that we all have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've always, I'm always, I'm highly, I'm very much about context. I actually, mm -hmm. I think I told you the story that after years of being with my spiritual community who are predominantly Asian, of Asian background, mostly Confucian Asian backgrounds, my context lens has gone up tremendously. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have, mm -hmm. I said, if I would have taken CQ 20 years ago, or even when I first met them versus now, it would be very different, right? So I'm, I'm a lot more high context than I was in the past with that influence. It used to frustrate the mess out of me because we'd be having these conversations. I'm like, oh my God, how many times are we going to go about this? <laughs> and when we did something and we implemented it, it was smooth as, you know, as icing on a cake. Mm -hmm. But all the way up, I was like, oh my God, just get on with it. We'll figure it out. No, but no, we have to go through every little thing. The other thing that occurred to me as you were talking, how does power distance even fit into that conversation? Because it's always, it's already naturally in the values. 
is it going to be taken into account when you start talking about the vertical aspects of some of the, around the research that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is accounted for in terms of saying even the official roles of power may be there, but how do you see some of the invisible power? Because I think people have tended to think of power distance either, you know, according to a nationality or quite simply, are they top down or not? But you and I both know there's some people who might be leading in a very anti-hierarchical, egalitarian way, but they walk in the room and their presence just immediately says status. That might be the way they're dressed. It might be, yeah. to your point, the privilege they have, socioeconomic. Uh, the other thing that's a little bit interesting is then, you know, what kind of correlation do you see between some of the cultural values and the CQ capabilities? So the mm. cultural values for those is not as well versed as you and I are in the language. They, those are things like the power distance or like you said, context, direct, indirect. And the capabilities are the drive, knowledge, strategy, and action. And we've looked at is there some kind of correlation between uncertainty avoidance, the subversion to risk, and whether or not you score high in CQ strategy, the planning and anticipating, and found that yes, there is some measure of that that predicts it. But then likewise with drive, there tends to be that people with high CQ drive might find themselves more inclined to just go with the flow and not necessarily take the time to plan out something that they're doing. So. Those are the kinds of interesting relationships that we want to dig into more deeply. Yeah, that you got me, man, you, I shouldn't have asked these questions because now I'm like super like, yeah, I'm like, well, is that a curiosity thing in the drive? Like what's in there is. And I think that is, I think that is some of it. It's actually, because we always say cultural intelligence can be learned by anyone and you right. know, I still stand right. by that. However, to your point, there are some people who just have a higher level of curiosity and openness, and you do see then that those individuals just tend to be ready to explore. And then, yeah, actually, you're reminding me, it's been a while since I've looked at the research, that was actually part of what explained the lower risk aversion. If you have high curiosity, you may actually engage in more risky behaviors. So I don't need to plan out this whole thing, and I don't need to figure out who's going to meet me when I land at the airport or whatever other example we might give. So it's kind of interesting to see the way these, it's not quite so linear. We're starting right. to acknowledge the complexity and circular nature of it. Wow. Very powerful. Thank you. I, I, I know I need to talk to you more frequently and not just on a Appreciate podcast it, and I can say what I really think about white fragility, but that's a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave, is there anything that I should have asked you over our 30 minutes that I didn't ask you that you'd like to add to the dialogue? So when Digital Diverse and Divided came out a year ago, the question I was asked most, but it doesn't surprise me that you didn't ask me, is why should we listen to a white, straight, middle-aged guy writing a book about diversity? So I know that's not your question, but I would say for those who are asking, I, first of all, I don't see myself as a DEI expert. I do see you that way, and that's not to be patronizing. You've done the hard work internally and externally. As I already mentioned, I think cultural intelligence is a piece of it, and I want to be continuing to grow my expertise on how does it support a piece of the DEI conversation as well as global mobility and lots of other things. But I would say to those people who might be asking that question that you didn't ask, 
I get and I support the fact that lived experience is a really important part. And you self-reflected on saying people are upset when you talk about privilege. I would guess there are times too that you've been stereotyped in ways that I haven't been. And so that gives you a different level of understanding of it than I have. It also doesn't seem right for me though, if I abdicate all responsibility to my black brothers and sisters or whatever marginalized group, like, well, it's not my thing, so I don't want to be speaking up on DEI. I think I ought to have a role to play in it while always acknowledging that I have my biases. And um, the, the other thing I would say with that, you know this because you did your due diligence on us at the very beginning, but the body of research behind cultural intelligence is a very eclectic, global, diverse group that's there. So yes, I'm kind of the loud mouthpiece blabbing on about it all the time, but there's a lot of people from different backgrounds who who've been engaged in it. But thank you, Omri. Always so good to get your insightful questions. And while you've thrown me some softballs here, people need to know that behind the scenes throughout the years, you've been good about challenging me. But what about, and how do we, and where are we going with? And it's, that's what I love about our friendship. I feel like. I do too, Dave. And I know what I'm finding, which I didn't necessarily fully understand is there's a lot of people still as much as ubiquitous as it is in my heart and mind there's a lot of people that still haven't gotten a chance to fully understand what cq is and what it can Absolutely. do as a set of capabilities to help you as i say create the conditions for all of your folks in your organization to thrive mm-hmm. and i gave you softballs because the next time i bring you on i'm going to go all in and <laughs> you have to promise to come back and then we can talk about all those things that I'm trying to be nicer. One of my best friends, I talked to him. I hadn't talked to him for a while. He said, Amri, you just need to be nicer and positive for a while. And I was like, all right, it's going to be hard if you are ever on LinkedIn. Sweet. With I got nice Amri. You got, you know, Amri's mostly nice. I've um, never not known Amri to be nice. But I mean, that's an interesting cultural thing, right? But nice doesn't mean you don't challenge. No, I actually challenge because of how much I love people. I love humanity. I love this work. And I know we can go deeper. And every time I talk to you, I go deeper and I appreciate it. And thank you for being a part of today. And I'm sure everybody will love it. And I'll say to everybody, I hope this was helpful and make it a great day. Peace. If you are committed or simply a little bit curious about how to make DEI accessible to everyone, actionable, that is unambiguously prioritized and sustainable, aligned with personal and organizational purpose, hit the subscribe button. Make it a great day. Peace.